Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to the program, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Now, uh, the one thing I always make a point of people knowing is that we do this show live and it means that the show doesn't get like, because this used to happen. I'd record the show at like 7.30 in the morning and think I can just go and have a nice little day and then uh, we're editing it and then some news breaks at like noon and it completely undermines the point of the show. Now, the thing that we do now that it's live is we have to make sure the guests are available at a certain time and today was one of these days where we had like I don't know like 10 feelers out invitations for this guest to join us that guest to join us no one was getting back to us and then like 10 minutes before the show goes to air everyone that we talked to wants to come on today so uh, we didn't have room for them today so we'll uh, rearrange some stuff over the course of the week and talk to all these wonderful people that I am very grateful are taking uh, some time out of their day to speak to me and by extension to speak to you but I do want to begin with some of the breaking news out of uh, not just out of Israel, but specifically out of Canada's response to the brutal attacks by Hamas against Israel. Now, uh, one of the things that is most important to note here is that, uh, as my friend Laura Rosen-Cohen, a prolific blogger, has always said, everyone meets at Jew-hate junction. It seems to be uh, the place where the far left, the far right, extremists in a number of different environments all tend to converge on anti-Semitism. And as a result, anti-Semitism is far more common than many people would care to admit. Oftentimes, as we were talking about yesterday with Sue Ann Levy, uh, anti-Semitism is cloaked or hidden or concealed behind things like anti-Zionism or criticism of Israel, which are uh, both legitimate views that people could hold without being anti-Semitic. But far too often, there is an overlap there, and people are just trying to mute what is a deep-seated hatred or contempt for the Jewish people. And that's never been the case for me. I've had uh, the privilege of visiting Israel tw twice. Once was a, a trip that allowed me to immerse myself in Holocaust history. It was a very heavy trip, but I learned a great deal. Another was a bit more of a well-rounded trip where I spent some time talking to uh, Palestinian representatives, talking to Israeli representatives, talking to people in the private sector, talking to ordinary people on the streets of Israel and communities across this very small country. And it was amazing how the people that live in Israel have just sort of accepted that security risks are a part of their life. It's not to say they shrug it off, they take precautions, but they just accept that they are going to live in a place, especially people that live closer to the border with Gaza, for example, where they are going to at some point have to withstand rocket fire. Now, uh, that is not to say that this is not relevant and is not newsworthy. It is. It absolutely is. But it's to say that the Israeli people have shown a tremendous amount of resilience just by living in Israel. Uh, my friend Avi Yamini, who is a contributor to Rebel News, just landed in Israel. He's going to be covering, uh, doing some reporting from the ground. And, and one of the things that he noted in his video I saw was that he was expecting to get on an empty plane going to Tel Aviv from wherever he was flying. But in fact, he got on a plane that was full because people want to be with their families. They want to be in the country that matters a great deal to them. And there is uh, a bit of inspiration we can all take from that. Now, of course, none of that is apparent in the Canadian media coverage or much of the Western media coverage, for example. Uh, CBC, you may have seen, had sent a memo out to its journalists urging them to not call Hamas 
a terror organization, to not refer to Hamas as a terror group. Now, let me say there are a number of things in journalism that you have to include both sides of. Hamas is, as a matter of fact and a matter of law in Canada, a terrorist entity. This is something that is a long-standing and really uncontested designation as a list of terror organizations in Canada that includes Hamas. But to CBC, you cannot call them that. You're also not supposed to reference the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza by Israel, which took place in 2005, nearly 20 years ago. So any claim that Israel is occupying Gaza is simply untrue. But you're not going to see that reflected in CBC coverage. Uh, this memo sent out by the editorial standards director for the public broadcaster is one of the more explicit examples of this uh, bias against Israel in its reporting of the Middle East, but by no means exclusively so, which is why Mike Fagelman always has his work cut out for him. He is the executive director of Honest Reporting Canada, which tries to keep the media responsible on this issue. And he joins me now. Mike, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on your program, Andrew. So, so this CBC memo, which I, I'm very grateful was leaked uh, because it allows us to see very explicitly the marching orders that are being given. But I'm guessing you, just from reading coverage that CBC has published, could probably have indicated this was either an internalized bias or a matter of policy in their coverage already, right? Well, it's a systemic issue where a public broadcaster, again, taxpayer dollars, refuses to call terror by its name. Andrew, as you point out, the Canadian government deems that Hamas is a terrorist organization. This isn't subjective. This is a matter of fact. But our public broadcaster is instructing its journalists to bend over backwards to sanitize terror and not call it for what it really needs to be called. Uh, the second component is in terms of not regarding uh, Israel's pullout, disengagement from Gaza. They're basically saying, no, this is really effectively still an occupation. Israel controls the land, sea and air. Whereas in reality, you know, up until a couple of days ago when Hamas had kidnapped about 100 plus people, there were no Israelis in Gaza, not settlers, not soldiers. This is what's actually happening on ground. So when, when you ask, you know, is our public broadcaster, is there an inherent bias? This is very clear. Well, and we also have seen some reporters uh, in the past push back against what they believe is a too pro-Israel bias that exists in the media. I know a couple of years ago, there was this bizarre open letter that was being signed in which you had activist journalists saying that uh, outlets should actually adopt the activist language. They should call it an occupation. They should call it illegal. They should accuse Israel of war crimes. And, and that was revealing of the sensibility of where a lot of individual reporters in Canada lie on this issue. Yeah, and I think I think certainly in the past couple of years, we've noticed there's a shift in journalism where a lot of journalists who are tasked to be politically neutral and objective are shifting into becoming activists. Even though they're under the payroll of either our public broadcaster or other media outlets, we're flagging journalists who constantly inserting their personal opinion and personal political views into their coverage. That makes it jaundiced, that makes it slanted, and that fits their own political narrow viewpoint. It is very alarming. Yeah, and I, just to go back to this memo from CBC here, they say, please make sure you don't use loaded language. And it goes on in that same paragraph, everything we say and write publicly as CBC journalists can be seen as part of our coverage and should be fact-based. So we go back to the Hamas designation. The fact that Hamas is a registered and designated terrorist group in Canada 
is a fact. So by not including that, they're undermining what they say is a commitment to, you know, the old just the facts, ma'am line. Yeah, they need to call a spade a spade. Public Safety Canada, our government, deems Hamas, I think it was 20 years ago, I think it was over 20 years ago, declared Hamas a terror group, but they refuse to call it as such. There's also hypocrisy in the CBC's coverage of whether it's the Air India bombing. They have no problem appropriating the term and in, in its variants, terror, terrorism, terror, terrorist. But not as it relates to Hezbollah, the Lebanese terror group, not as it relates to ISIS even, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, no. They, they prefer to use language like fighter, insurgents, militants, the, the, the most sanitized language you could possibly imagine. And imagine you're a reader, a listener, a viewer. You can't really tell who these people actually are. If, you know, in, in some respect, it almost comes off like their actions are legitimate when, when they're whitewashed in such a horrible way. One of the things that, that I've always found so difficult about this issue is that you are having to deal with seven decades. I mean, you're dealing with millennia of history, but if you're just talking about the state of Israel, you're dealing with, you know, seven plus decades of history, which if you've not been following it on the ins and outs, and even if you have been, is very difficult to condense into a few sentences of background in a story. And as a result, a lot of misinformation tends to be disseminated very easily. And I mean, one, and I, I know you're well aware of this, people may have seen this map that or it's a series of maps that purports to show you know israeli land grabs from palestinians and it's probably one of the most easily debunked and historically inaccurate maps but you see this held up on signs you see media outlets in some cases referencing it the new york times a few years back did this and like do you think this is an example of in most cases incompetence or bias like do you think it's just journalists that don't know history that don't know geopolitics that are just being fed information from faulty sources or do you think it is that pushing an agenda yeah i i don't think they're mutually exclusive i i do think it mm. is a healthy combination of both i think there are certainly some journalists where there is an element of malice where there's an intention to malign and to mislead and then I think there's like, you know, lots of people, there's no shortage of ignorance and naivete who accept uh, the slanted political views and falsehoods as being conventional wisdom when they're not. And are and willing, instead of doing their due diligence and fact-checking and confirming the veracity of, you know, simple information that you can find with the click of a button on Google, they refuse to do so. Or maybe there's just a lack of editorial vigor and due diligence. In, in any event, the resulting effect is that people are misled. And this fundamentally changes paradigms about Israel, the Middle East, Canadian attitudes, Canadian foreign policy. It's uh, it's debilitating. One of the things that I, I am always encouraged by is that you do seem to get traction when you raise these issues from a lot of media outlets. They'll they'll issue corrections, they'll change reporting. And I, I'm wondering if that's happening more or less frequency. Are you finding it's harder to get those uh, corrections and concessions when you point out these issues? Uh, it's a mixed bag and it's always going to be case by case there. We have felt that we found that over, you know, there are certain media outlets who are more amenable to a professional dialogues. And, and, and then there are others who quite frankly are obtuse and I'll be honest, provide a, a bit of a window dressing of journalistic accountability. I think, you know, referencing the CBC, it's a perfect example where a public broadcaster is far too often reluctant to atone for journalistic transgressions. Other media outlets we found are, are open to a dialogue. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a systemic issue, though. Yeah, and, and just to use CBC as an example, uh, one of the things that has happened with them is, uh, I oh, I'm talking to myself now. I believe we have lost Mike, so we'll have to... Uh, 
uh, to get Mike back here in just a moment. But I should say, I mean, the CBC example, it was a leaked memo. Yes, it was a, a memo that was uh, published, that was disseminated, and that was reported on. And at, at first, there were people saying, oh, we don't know if this is true or not. When asked for comment, CBC uh, completely owned up to it. They they completely bought, bought the fact that, like, yeah, this is what we believe. This is who we are. And we stand by it. So CBC is a great example here, where as a matter of policy, they are choosing to take a very biased anti-Israel view, which is to say that we are going to whitewash the terrorism of Hamas. And, and that's the thing. And when I mentioned yesterday on the show, and I'll, I'll repeat it for those who missed it, or I'll say it louder for those at the back, you cannot both sides a conflict in which one side is a terrorist group attacking civilians. You cannot just talk about this as though there are two belligerents in a conflict like some state-on-state -state war. This is a case where you have a terrorist insurgent group that is attacking Israeli civilians, attacking children, seniors, women, doesn't matter, and doing absolutely brutal things to them. And by the way, I will mention uh, one of the challenges yesterday. I, I had acknowledged that there had been this report from I-24, an Israeli reporter, in which she quoted uh, IDF soldiers as saying they had seen evidence of babies being beheaded. This has become uh, just an absolute, like, brutal debate online uh, about, oh, well, did it actually happen? And her only evidence is, is what an IDF said. And I, I qualified that on the show, but I said, look, I've seen photos that suggest this stuff has gone on. And, uh, you know, look, I would love for it to not be true. I would absolutely love for no infants to have gone through what that reporter and what the soldiers uh, with whom she spoke described happening. But the reality is it is entirely plausible. It has the ring of truth. Like anything in a conflict, you have to uh, verify and, and avoid the tendency to just buy into memes, buy into information which is uh, traveling at breakneck speeds and can't be verified. But it's something that I think it's interesting how many people are trying so hard to say it's not true definitively because they know how difficult it will be for them to keep up the narrative and rhetoric they're keeping up, which is whitewashing Hamas's crimes, if in fact this ends up becoming even more verified than it is. And I'll, I'll ask you about that, Mike. We have Mike Fagelman back from Honest Reporting Canada. I mean, obviously, information's coming at breakneck speeds. Uh, media outlets, I believe, do have an important role in, in sharing both sides of the conflict here. And I, if there are people in Canada that are rallying because they oppose Israel, I think their voices should be included for, for context. Where do you draw the line, though? Because I know you've raised criticism about the platforming of some of these people. We draw the line when individuals are given a platform to justify terrorism. And listen, if, if it's a live interview and something is said that, you know, whether it's calling for, for Jews to be decapitated, uh, you know, it, you got to call that out. You got you to gotta say this is just abhorrent. What we're seeing far too often are, are column inches, reporting, airtime given to people who are saying, look, it's because of the settlements, because of the so-called occupation of Gaza, that this is what brought upon Hamas to come in, murder 1,200 people, decapitate babies, burn whole families alive. It, it's, it's just morally repugnant. repugnant. It's, it's uh, utter depravity. And, and it's, it's shocking that journalists just accept all these kind of claims at face value instead of just simply asking, you know, Hamas calls for Israel's destruction and the Jewish people to be on the receiving end of a genocide for or against. It's a simple question. 
nobody's asking it. How is that possible? Yeah, and I, I mentioned, I, I don't know if you heard it because it was when we were having the connection issues, but you know, this is not an example of someone inadvertently using a loaded word or someone who accidentally uh, uses something, which, you know, I, for example, I, don't, I didn't have a lot of experience uh, when I started out in media writing about Indigenous issues. So there were times when I would uh, accidentally use the wrong term for something and someone would say, hey, Andrew, this is what you should do, and you correct it and you move on. We're not talking about in CBC's case an example of that because they literally laid out their policy in writing for us to see. Exactly, and and look, there there are people that they interview who use you know lexicon like resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, Palestinians are entitled to resistance. Resistance it, that's a euphemism for terror. It's a euphemism for suicide bombings. And I just, I saw a report a couple of minutes ago uh, in the past Andrew in the past ten minutes. You know, uh, I think there's a, a dozen Hezbollah paraglide terrorists. Who are trying to, to go into Israel and attack, and and are, are we going to see people saying, "Oh, well, that's that's legitimate. It's justifiable." Look, they're they're trying to um, end the occupation now, and and that's the you know the statement some people are making are, "Look, it's been seventy five years of occupation. Seventy five years. What you're actually saying is that Israel fundamentally has no right to exist." Um, but our, you know our journalists are are not pushing back against these claims. They're accepting it at face value, uh, perhaps because they're they're willing and, and agreeable. Other times they're ignorant. Either way, it's unacceptable. Well, I know you are doing a great job keeping them honest, as your name suggests, Honest Reporting Canada, Mike Fagelman. Thank you so much for coming on, Mike. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. All right. Uh, and one thing that I, I will point out here as well, and, and I actually would, would uh, as I indicated in my question there, uh, disagree with Mike slightly. I think that you should uh, give people a platform if it's important that you understand what their perspectives are. Uh, because I, it's the same way that I defend the right uh, to free speech for some of these uh, protests that we see when people are saying vile, heinous things, because I would rather know about it. I would rather, uh, if the media is going to cover a pro-Palestine or pro-Palestinian rally, and the people there are fine with the uh, slaughter of Jews, I would actually like the media uh, to expose that and to give them a platform. Now, ideally, there should be some pushback. We should challenge falsehoods. And, and this is the problem of just sending out some random uh, person with a microphone and a camera who doesn't know about an issue is that they don't know when they're being fed a lie. So if you send some reporter that knows nothing about uh, Israel-Palestinian issues and someone says, oh yes, we support resistance, Israel's been occupied, human rights are being violated, it's an apartheid state, all the uh, bring out all the hits there, and the reporter's just like, oh okay, and then what are you doing next? Like, that's not journalism. So that is where we get to the, I think, the real problem here. Now, uh, Nicola in the comments says, so you only give interviews to pro-Zionists, LOL. Well, actually, I would happily interview uh, one of these people. If there is one of these activists that can honestly say that they are okay and they believe that uh, children being slaughtered is advancing the Palestinian cause, I would absolutely welcome that conversation because I believe that deserves to be called out. Now, uh, the thing is, I'm also interviewing people who I do not believe are given a fair shake by the legacy media. I interview people uh, who and oftentimes are never given the opportunity to address audiences or are rarely doing it. So uh, absolutely, I am happy to have Mike Fagelman on the show and that is not something I apologize for. So if you don't like it, Nicholas, screw off. Uh, but, uh, and, but also continue watching. You're a valued member of this audience, I'm sure. But let me also point out something here, which is that uh, QP Ontario 
has like gone through this weird uh, development in the last few days. Fred Hahn, who's their very outspoken uh, president of their Ontario division, was uh, tweeting out on Thanksgiving about uh, resistance. There you have it. Uh, he says, resistance is fruitful, and no matter what some might say, resistance brings progress. And for that, I'm thankful. Just like the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock gathering around the table, talking about resisting the Jewish Zionist dogs. That's what they talk about, right? Yeah, absolutely disgusting stuff. What is passing for resistance rhetoric in a lot of context here is actually a call for Hamas's obliteration of the Israeli state. Now, uh, Fred Hahn tweeted this morning that he never said he supported violence. He never did that. But nowhere in his thread did he condemn violence. Nowhere in his thread did he denounce violence. And that, I think, is a very important aspect of this. Lots of people that are trying to claim, oh, I've never encouraged it, but they've also used the language of those who are happy with violence without shouting it down. Now, uh, Sarah Jama, who is a New Democratic Party member of the provincial legislature in Ontario, uh, she put out this statement in which she calls for an immediate ceasefire. She says the generations-long occupation of Palestine uh, is apartheid. She goes on and says that the uh, news coming out is deeply concerning. She says settler colonialism has taken the lives of far too many people. So Israelis are colonists. Well, uh, Jews are actually indigenous to that region. So Israel is actually the largest indigenous settlement. Uh, not Well, not a settlement, indigenous you know, community in the world. Uh, she says, we must look to the solution of this endless cycle of death and destruction and all occupation of Palestinian land and end apartheid. So again, nowhere in there does she denounce any violence, does she denounce any extremism. And one point that I would, I, I shouldn't say it's the largest in the world, I guess, you know, China is a large indigenous uh, colony as well. I No, not colony, I, I'm mixing up the words here. See, I read too much CBC this morning and now my words are all mixed up like theirs. I've got to go to re-education camp, only true North content for the next 24 hours. But uh, the reality is in Israel is the largest re-indigenized country. That's the word I was uh, attempting to say there because it's a society in which Jews have returned to their homeland. And the one thing that is important to note in the context here is that Israel has extended at several points throughout history the offers of a two-state solution. Israel has historically welcomed a two-state solution, and it is the Palestinians who have rejected it. I shared yesterday for probably, I don't know, a minute and a half, the map of the Middle East, the screenshot of Google. Oh, we still have it there. And I, I note that the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Jordan River on the east side of Israel, that is what Palestinians claim as Palestine, from the river to the sea. They want there to be no Israel. So it's hard to come up with a workable two-state solution with a group of people that believe you should not have a right to have your state in the least. Uh, and again, people can debate whether Israel has been too heavy-handed. People can debate the blockades on Gaza. People can debate Israeli settlements. People can debate uh, the Jerusalem status. All of this is entirely legitimate for us to debate and discuss as individual people, which is why I believe freedom of speech is so paramount. Even the freedom to engage in rhetoric that people may find uncomfortable or offensive. But 
Here's the catch with that. The caveat with that is that oftentimes people are only interested in free speech for their own perspective. I am consistent and I'm hopeful that a lot of you in this audience who value freedom of speech are consistent as well and are understanding the importance of folks from different sides of this to have the right to say their piece. But it is funny how all of these QP folks, uh, for example, QP issued a statement in the wake of the Fred Hahn stuff. And in its statement, they've somehow like invoked indigenous peoples in Canada. They've like issued a clarification on it. They've still not denounced violence. They have still not denounced violence. And if you read this statement, uh, they are talking about choosing justice over injustice, siding with the powerless over the powerful, and supporting the colonized over the colonizer. And again, they have not denounced violence. And the only thing you'll get from these groups is this very peripheral window dressing. Well, we don't like what civilian, we don't like what happens to civilians. But as I shared yesterday in that clip from the Edmonton rally, oftentimes if you ask one question further and say, well, give me a definition of civilian, they will not view an Israeli civilian as being a civilian because, oh, well, they're uh, maybe in the reserves or maybe they once served with the IDF because of Israel's conscription policy. And that is that. So uh, one thing I'll, I'll say on this before moving on is that I am very clear and very unambiguous about what my bias is. And this is a talk show. Uh, well, I do try to bring a level of facts to it. I also bring my own opinion, and I'm very clear in what that opinion is. You will never have to wonder with me where I stand on an issue. That is not true for the people at CBC. They claim they are free of bias. They claim their view is rooted in facts, but as we've learned, it is in fact rooted in a very deep-seated bias which whitewashes Hamas terrorism. So uh, next time CBC is willing to own up to uh, admitting Canada is a nation of genociders, uh, it's not really a term you hear uh, that often. In fact, it may be a word I made up. I uh, just remember how often they're able to whitewash real attempts at genocide, at the ethnic cleansing of the Jewish people as, well, we, we don't want to use loaded terms. That is CBC's approach here. So uh, we will move on from this and revisit it tomorrow as the news develops here. I, I want to pivot to a, a breaking news story, which literally just happened in the hour before this show commenced. You may recall a couple of weeks back, we spoke to Rod Giltaka of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights about how the CCFR was calling on the federal government to extend the amnesty period for firearms that were banned by that May 2020 order in council. Now, uh, just to bring you up on speed, this was uh, often called the AR-15 ban, but there were about 1,500 types of firearms that the government banned overnight with the stroke of a pen. And they said, you'll have two years of amnesty, and then you'll be able to sell it back to the government in that time or sell it back. Well, that's a little bit of an odd term because the government never owned it in the first place. Uh, but because this was a plan that was written on the back of a napkin, there has not been a single gun purchased by the government. There is no buyback program. And the amnesty period was extended and was about to come to an expiration. And that was going to come this month. Now, the big news this morning is that the government has quietly adopted a renewal of this amnesty period. It will now go to October 2025. So two years from now, you see it buried on the government's website there, which I learned from our friends at the CCFR. Tracy Wilson joins me now. It is always good to talk to you, Tracy. So 
look, obviously you're not at all happy about the ban in the first place, but it's got to be a bit of a win uh, in the sense that this is not putting gun owners in jeopardy as imminently as it once looked like it would. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Um, we are fighting that ban in court still and are expecting a decision from Justice Kane in the federal court by the end of the month as well. So lots of stuff happening. But this extension, to me, it was almost cruel for the Liberals to leave it this late in the game. Last time, I think it was months before it was coming to expire, they recognized they didn't have the ability or the, you know, the framework to follow through with the confiscation program, so they willingly extended it. This time, here we are just weeks away from the original expiration date of the last extension, and gun owners are sitting here wondering if they were about to be exposed to criminal charges. So we had filed an injunction application with the federal court to force the Liberals to go ahead and extend that amnesty. Of course, we did get this news this morning. Um, the Crown Counsel for the government um, did send this information as well to to the the judge in our case, um, you know, I guess hoping that we would pull back on that um, that um, application motion before the court. However, this announcement so far is actually just an announcement. Normally, this stuff would appear in the um, Canada Gazette, which it does not yet. So hmm. we're sort of waiting for that assuming that this is uh, they are going to go through with this extension until after the next election which we can talk about, um, then we will withdraw that that application for an injunction. So yeah, yeah we just, are going to get to the election aspect of this. Do not worry about that, Tracy. But okay. you know, one element of this that I, I really, and Rod and I were talking about this a, a couple of weeks back that I, I really am disturbed by is that it really reminds gun owners the precarity of their rights, that that you are entirely mm -hmm. at the whim of government here. Government can just keep it dangling this deadline until the last possible minute before changing it. And this puts gun owners in a very difficult position. I mean, obviously, on a rational level, we know that if the government has banned a gun and they haven't put the mechanism in place to buy it back, they're probably not going to kick down my door uh, without extending the, that amnesty and giving me an opportunity to, to turn it in. But for a lot of people that aren't as tuned into this issue, it's just like, wh why bother with the hassle would be the response. Oh, I've ha I had a 71-year-old member call me last week, and he left a message for me to call him back, and I called him. And he broke down in tears on the phone. He said, look, I've, I've owned these guns for decades, safely and without issue. And I, you know, it, it was hard enough for me to hear the government say that they no longer trust me to own this stuff that I've owned forever without problem. Um, but to now say that that amnesty is running out. And he said, I don't know what to do. Do I take my guns to the police station? Who do I call? What do I do? And it is unfair to me to leave Canadians in this kind of position where they're dangling you know, by a thread until the very last moment. And that's why we filed that emergency injunction application was because we know better after eight years of treatment from this government, we won't leave the freedom and future of Canadian gun owners in the hands of the Liberal government because we know they don't care about us.
And not that I am at all encouraging the government to expedite anything. This is one of these examples where government incompetence has actually worked in our favor as Canadians, I think. But, you know, their argument when they issued this order in council in May of 2020 was that, and I remember that press conference very well, Bill Blair saying these guns serve one purpose alone, and that's killing people. They believed that these guns were uh, putting humans in Canada at risk. If that were the case letting those people keep having those guns for five years would be rather reckless. But we haven't seen mass killings take place in Canada in that time. So, I mean, this extension and re-extension undermines the government's core argument in banning the guns in the first place. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, these are guns, you know, designed to kill the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time. Mm -hmm. And all this crazy baloney that they said in that press conference, guns so dangerous, we're not permitted to own them, yet we're forced to keep them for five and a half years, minimum. Like, to me, it's, it, it's insane. And you're right, it does speak to the fact that everything they said in that press conference and from that day forward has been nothing but political fodder. And of course, we're the football in their game. Um, and we know, we can see there hasn't been a problem with them. We've still got them. Every single person in Canada who legally owned an AR-15 before that ban still has it. I've got two of them about 10 feet from me right now. You know, we're all in the same boat. And now here we are, we're going to have to keep them for another two years. And that's the other weird thing is somebody who is a, a gun owner, a sports shooter, or maybe even an aging sports shooter, and maybe they're not going to be involved in this sport anymore. And they decide they, you know, look, I'm, I'm getting out of it. I'm retiring or I've got an injury. I'm not interested. Whatever the reason is, it's not an option. You are forced to keep those guns. So guns so dangerous that the liberal government is forcing you to keep them. I, it's just, it's a weird paradox that we're in. It is. And you mentioned the election aspect. So this deadline now, the end of October 2025, uh, I mean, there could be an election at any moment in, in a minority government, but there will be one by 2025 under the fixed election laws. So on one hand, I think this gives gun owners a bit of hope that maybe some party is going to run and win. And part of their election uh, promise will be that they're not going to follow through with this. They're going to lift the ban and get rid of the amnesty and the buyback and all of that. Uh, the flip side of that, though, is that it also means the Liberals are planning an election to be fought about firearms. And I, I'm wondering how you feel about that, because we know that as gun owners, we are in a minority in Canada, and we know that banning guns has historically played pretty well for the Liberals. Well, we saw what happened when uh, Justin Trudeau in the debates with Aaron O'Toole, former Conservative leader, got him twisted up. And the headlines will be conservatives will put AR-15s in the streets of Canada. Like it will be some absurd thing like that, that they're going to try and hang around the neck of Pierre Polyev, um, he, who has committed to, you know, instead of focusing on banning legal guns from licensed owners, will instead focus on crime, violence and gun smuggling. I know, crazy notion. Um, but I would like to save them all that trouble and win in court and have this OIC deemed um, improper and illegal and have it overturned uh, because, yeah, that's exactly what it'll be. And at the end of the day, the, the people who really lose here are the anti-gun groups because, boy, have they been played. You mm -hmm. know, at, now you've got this once again going to be taken to as an election platform, as an election issue. And they'll be used, they'll reuse it over and over again. They're just recycling the same thing. It, you know, I, I understand 
the general public maybe doesn't understand why average Canadians like me, I'm a suburb, suburban grandma, why I would own guns like that. Um, but at the end of the day, when you keep using this over and over again for political fodder, and we see the rising crime continue to escalate, I think that's going to get old really quickly. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. And I think also the liberals have capitalized off of crisis and they've capitalized off of crime. I mean, most of their sweeping gun measures have come in the wake of some tragedy, whether it was the Nova Scotia uh, killing spree, which led to the OIC, whether it was the, I think it was Uvalde in Texas that kind of precipitated the introduction of the handgun ban in yeah. Canada. Uh, the, the one thing that the liberals have done is, is leverage that news. I, I think there are a lot of Canadians that would probably be looking around and saying, well, I, I'm not actually uh, seeing that my neighbor who likes to go to the range on weekends is causing me any harm. I mean, that's the hope. And I think that's why the education key has always been has the education component has always been so key. Yeah, well, and we've uh, put a lot of effort into that. I think, you know, what, what happens is you hear these horrific stories and these, you know, these crimes, they're horrendous. And I think every Canadian agrees. We don't want to see that. We don't want that. But for the Liberals to tie that directly to licensed legal gun owners is not only disingenuous, it's actually dangerous because what it does is it draws the focus and the resources away from combating crime and from even um, implementing a lot of the measures that already exist in our toolbox. I did an ATIP a few years back on the application for a firearms license. You have to provide two references. And I think that's a really important part of the vetting process is who would know better if somebody like me or somebody like you should own a gun than the people closest to us, right? People who have known us for years and years. Is this person trustworthy? And I wondered, because I know I've been the reference for probably hundreds of gun owners, and I've never once received a call from the RCMP firearms program asking me to, you know, to, to vouch for these people. So I filed an ATIP to find out how often or do they even call the references or even the spouses, you know, if there's a concern about domestic violence and it's less than 10%. And the reason for that is with this government, they keep putting more and more burden, more and more regulation and work on the shoulders of the provincial CFOs without allocating any more funding to cover that. So they are stretched so thin that they're not, they're not able to carry through the original vetting processes that are in place to make sure that guns don't fall into the wrong hands and then use that when something does go wrong, then they use that for political fodder to further attack our community and to divide Canadians along political lines. So to me, that's, that's dangerous. It's not good for any of us. And, you know, I also don't want bad people to have guns, right? So, yeah, I mean, you're yeah. never going to, I think I may have joked about it with you. I can't remember if it was on air or off air. I mean, the, the, the worst thing you could ever do uh, as a gun owner is like post a photo in which your finger is like, even like the shadow hovering oh, yeah. over the trigger because the law abiding responsible gun owners will pounce and it is vicious oh, yeah. and it is terrible because they are the most safety conscious people they are to a fault. And oh, yeah. that's, I think, the thing that people don't realize is how, like, if you're one of these people that likes to live dangerously, the worst thing you can do is go out to the gun range with a bunch of gun owners because you will be, like, just mortified by how safety conscious they all are. Well, and that's part of the whole process of developing National Range Day, uh, which is a couple years old now. And it's it's just, 
you know, look, we can debate gun policy back and forth and fight on Twitter and go through long threads of information and fight all day long about it. But the we, you and I both know the very best way to influence somebody's opinions about guns and gun ownership is just to take them to the range. And when people come to the range on National Range Day, I mean, these are, you know, families coming, uh, just average people from the community. Most of them have never laid their hands on a firearm before. And they come and they get to experience it in a safe and welcoming atmosphere under proper supervision and instruction and recognize all the safety protocols that are put in place. It totally changes their mind. And that's why we're going to continue to do that and grow that across the country um, because Canada has a very safe, robust history um, and heritage in owning firearms ownership. And I want that to continue, not just for my kids, but for their kids too. Uh, just a, a funny, funny story on this. I, I can't remember what gun it was. It was some handgun or something. I, I had just purchased it and I was cleaning it. So, you know, you have it out on the table and you're, you know, taking it into a bunch of different pieces. And I, I had the, the gun pointing and I needed to get up from where I was sitting and I was about to step in front of the barrel. Now, this is a gun that has never been used, that's dismantled, that is not loaded. And I like stopped and walked around just in, without even thinking of it instinctively, because that's one of the things that's just drilled into you is you never, you know, that was going, I think, above and beyond. But, you know, you never put a human in front of the barrel of a gun loaded, unloaded. It doesn't matter. So that's right. uh, this is something that gun owners know. And, and it, you're right that the government knows it, too. And I think that's key here is that they cannot plead ignorance on this. They know the regulations. They know restrictions. They know the crime rates. So when they talk about legal guns as being uh, some source of crime, it is a blatant brazen lie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I mean. At the, at the same time they're doing that, they're ignoring the problem of increased smuggling. And I mean, look, you know, with technology and 3D printing and all of these wild, crazy things going on out there, you, you're never going to catch it all, but we could do a better job at catching more of it. And this, you know, buyback confiscation program, that they're, you know, talking about eventually developing five years down the road or, or later, um, that's going to cost taxpayers upwards of six, eight billion dollars, billions of dollars. And I can't help but wonder, just as an average person and a mom and a grandma, would those funds not better be spent focusing on intersecting, you know, uh, illegal smuggled guns coming across the border or programs for at-risk youth who might be, you know, entering gang life or a number of other programs that would have a more positive public safety um, impact than targeting the very people who have dedicated their lives to following every rule and regulation, regardless of how ridiculous it is. And, you know, that's the social contract that we made as gun owners, as we would follow all this stuff um, with the with the uh, expectation that the government would more or less leave us alone. And unfortunately, this government has proved that they've broken that contract and so therefore we have no alternative but to fight them in court, to fight them in the court of public opinion, and of course to fight them at the election booth. Which cannot come quickly enough to a lot of people. Tracy Wilson, VP of Public Affairs for the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Always a pleasure, Tracy. Thanks a lot, Andrew. All right, thank you for that. That does it for us for today. We'll be back in just 23 hours and 15 minutes here on Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.